0: This morning we're going to be in Matthew 21. If you don't have a Bible, there's a copy of God's Word in front of you. If you'd like to, you're able to, and, and we'd love for you to take that home with you. That'd be a great gift for you. If you're not familiar with, with the Bible, kind of where things are found, there's a table of contents at the very front of that that's going to tell you where to find Matthew. It's the first book of the New Testament. The big numbers are going to be chapters. The small numbers are going to be verses. And so today we're in Matthew chapter 21, and we're going to journey from verses uh, one through verse seventeen. So today, in, in kind of the unfolding saga of of kind of church history and just kind of what this week is for those of you who are unfamiliar, uh, begins our kind of trip into Holy Week. So today marks the day where Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And we refer to that as the Triumphal Entry, and then. On Friday, Jesus will be crucified, and then we will celebrate his resurrection together next Sunday. And so today as we get together, we're going to talk about the triumphal entry. And one of the things that you'll observe in the triumphal entry is this question that gets asked close to the end of this section. When Jesus comes into the city, one of the things that people are asking is, who is this? In essence, who is Jesus? What exactly is he on about? What's his Ministry, what's his message? Who is Jesus? And this is a question that stands at the crossroad for us in our lives. And it's a question that if we get the answer wrong, has devastating effect for us in our lives. And so we have to make sure that we understand exactly who Jesus is. And and one of the things we're gonna see as we move through this passage is that there is a variety of response to how they give an answer to who exactly they think Jesus is. And so we're going to look at it in a couple of different ways, okay? And so right before we come into this passage, if you're kind of checking the chronology of things that are unfolding, a significant event has taken place. John chapter 11 records that this significant event has been Christ's resurrection of Lazarus. So Jesus hears that his friend Lazarus has died. He journeys to Bethany, where Lazarus lives, and and he brings him back from the dead. And when people hear about this, they begin to flock to Jesus in numbers that they haven't before. And and a lot of this centers on the fact that he's done something incredibly amazing. And so it seems that in some sense, they've kind of said, well, you know, the guy walks on water, he multiplies food, he heals the, the lame and the blind. But when he brings somebody back from the dead, Everybody begins to take note, and there's this terrific following of people that gather to flock to Jesus. And so this is kind of the chronology of it, something John gives us. And so it begins to understand why such a significant crowd is building around Jesus to this point. Now within the Gospel of Matthew, we get to the end of chapter 20, and he does something that's incredibly instructive for us in our understanding of kind of how things unfold in this first half of chapter 21. And that's he heals two men who are blind. So Jesus, who raises men from the dead, Jesus, who gives sight to the blind, is now beginning to enter into Jerusalem. Let's read the first seven verses together. Matthew writes and says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Matthew tells us this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them and they brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them and he sat on them. So this is the deal. Jesus is a couple of miles away from Jerusalem. And in order to get there, Jesus wants to tap into this rich heritage that's found in the Old Testament. And he wants to show that he is the express fulfillment of all the Old Testament anticipation. So everything has been leaning and directing towards Jesus coming, okay? Okay. And so what he does in the midst of getting there, now he could have done any number of things. He could have said, guys, come on. It's only a couple miles. We're going to walk. And he could have said, hey, bring me a war horse and a chariot. He could have done that. But it's important that what he did, he did with express meaning and express purpose. He gets to the disciples and he says, you're going to go and you're going to find a colt and you're going to find a donkey tied up and you're going to bring them to me. Now, If you're a disciple, by this point, Jesus has ingrained in you when Jesus speaks, you move, right? When Jesus tells you to do something, you do it. And when he says things are going to work out, it's going to be okay. Things are going to work out. And so the disciples hear the message and they say, "Uh, you know, apparently Jesus has spoken to somebody or or he has control over this. Don't worry about it. We're going to go. And so simply they go in and they find exactly what he said they would. They find exactly what he said they would, and and, and so they go in, and and they gather the donkey, and they gather the colt, and they begin to bring them out. And what Matthew wants us to see is the incredible fulfillment that Jesus speaks here in verse 5. And so what he does is he brings two verses together in Isaiah 62.11 and Zechariah 9.9. So let's look at the Isaiah passage first. The Zechariah passage tells us, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him. So he's cluing in and he's asking us to pick up on the significance that our salvation arrives with Jesus. Do you see that? Jesus, the very embodiment of salvation, is bringing our salvation forth. And so he's coming in, and Jesus would be the one, is the one who delivers us. Jesus is the one, the bringer of salvation, the bearer of sin. Of course, he links to it Zechariah 9 and verse 9. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why?" What, what cause, what special reason is given for the necessity of their praise, for the, the, the demand of their worship? It says, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Now conjure in your mind, conjure in your mind, if, if the most important figure in history was going to roll down Wesley Street, what would that look like? It would look like you and I sitting on the streets. It would look like limousines with open tops. It would look like a massive security detail. It would look like the most fantastic thing ever conceived and ever imagined. Your king is coming to you. Salvation lays in his winds. He is coming. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Is that what it says? Like, my Bible probably says the same thing yours does. And so it says humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. So what exactly is Jesus on about? What is he trying to show? What is he trying to demonstrate? Not only is he fulfilling the word given by Zechariah, but he's demonstrating something. Do you not see that that coming in the most humble of way possible? Mounted on this beast of burden... In fact, throw out of your mind, some of us have, have created within our minds that Jesus is on this glorious mammoth jack, right? And so he's sitting like seven feet off the ground and the thing is just massive and it's just kind of breathing out smoke and it's just fantastic. That may be, that may be the colt's mom, but that's not the colt he's riding on. So likely what's happening is somebody's leading this donkey along and the colt's just following its mom along. Jesus is on this untrained colt and, and, and so he's giving a tremendous picture of humility. This is what he's doing. And so the prophecy spoken hundreds of years before, Jesus is having an enacted parable. He's displaying a metaphor of humility. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus shows us a picture of humility. He shows us a picture of what it is the kind of king he would be. So, But here's the time for the crowd, the masses, to respond. So you have all those who have followed him uh, over the duration of his ministry, the, the big surge of those who have followed him since he raised Lazarus from the dead, and you have all those in Jerusalem who are going to run out to catch him. And so Jesus is coming in, and so there's this massive crowd coming with him. There are those in Jerusalem who see it, who hear it, and they run out to meet him. So Jesus is here in the middle, and he's sitting on a colt, and he's headed in. Jesus, the full embodiment of humility, Jesus with this massive crowd of people. And look what the crowds do, picking up in verse 8, reading through verse 11. It says, Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches. From the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and those that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And they respond, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So Jesus is displaying full humility, full meekness. He's riding on this colt. Somebody's leading the donkey. And everybody begins to gather around him, and, and they're shouting, and they're crying out. And so everybody's grabbing a cloak. You can imagine those who don't have it and say, hey, man, can I borrow your jacket? Yeah, that's fine. And they just throw it on the ground. What would you do that for? Well, he's coming on that colt. I want it to walk across it. That's a collector's item. You're going to want to keep that. And so those that don't have coats uh, go and they begin to cut branches and they throw them down. And so all this is displaying their belief, their, their actions are communicating that they think he's the king. They think Jesus is the one they've been waiting on. They think he's the coming Messiah. They think he is the warrior king they've always read about, always hoped for. And this is why their actions are this way. This makes sense to us, right? Like if you thought somebody was gonna come and deliver you from oppression and set you free, there is no limit to what you do to show them honor in their coming. And so they take their cloaks and they throw them on the ground. They take branches and they lay them on top of the cloaks. They want him to see by their actions that they believe he's the one. That they believe he's the one. And Jesus, the whole time exuding humility, the whole time displaying meekness, because he knows, I'm not the warrior king. I'm the suffering servant. So Jesus riding on the donkey, Jesus riding on the colt, hears them cry out over and over again, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. In essence, they're crying out, and their cry is, save us. And in saying, son of David, they're articulating now. More than just their actions, they're articulating. They're saying now that we believe you are the Messiah. Save us, son of David. Save us, this long-awaited one who's come from the line of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In essence, they're saying, we believe that you're here because God has sent you. We believe you're here because God has sent you. He sent you here for our deliverance. And our deliverance means our freedom. And on the basis of this, we think you should be praised. Everyone should praise you. And this is where this next line comes in. Hosanna in the highest. In essence, in their actions and in their articulations, they think everybody from the lowest to the highest to the angels gathered in heaven should join them in praising the one who comes. Hosanna in the highest. In some sense, they get it, right? Right? They get that he's worthy of praise. They get that he's worthy of adoration. They get that he's worthy of their respect, both their actions and their articulations. So it's not just the doing of stuff, but it's the doing of stuff and it's the saying of things brought together. They think that they're honoring Jesus for who he is. But they seem to be honoring Jesus for who they suppose him to be. So Jesus arrives in Jerusalem now, Jerusalem at this day probably had a population of around 75,000, but would swell upwards of 100,000. Some people say that it had much greater crowds than this, but just imagine, the whole city is a buzz. Everybody's talking about it. You can't run into anyone who's not talking about this crowd of people coming into the town. You just can't. It's impossible. And every time they run into somebody, they're like, uh, uh, uh hey, Trey, who is this? And Trey's like, oh, this is Jesus. Hey, Doug, who is this? Oh, this is Jesus. Hey, Jordan, who is this? And all the responses is, is, This is Jesus. And then they move to articulate a really designated response to who it is. This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. In essence, we know this guy. We know him. He's not new to us, he's not foreign to us, he's not distant from us. We know this Jesus, he's a prophet. So in some sense, like their minds are caught in this cycle of he's the the king, he's the Messiah, we just know him to be. Who is this? He's the prophet. He's one who speaks from God. So Jesus comes in and all he wants them to see is his humility. All he wants them to do is to know him in his suffering. But they can't help but see Jesus as the warrior king who's come to set them free. They can't help but see Jesus for how they can know him. So Jesus comes into the city. Now Mark tells us that Jesus goes from this into the temple and he kind of looks around the temple and he's like, okay, yeah. So I, I see the Isaacs over there. Mm-hmm, I see this family. I see you right here in the front row. I see, you. oh, you're talking and passing notes. You better cut that out. I'm coming back tomorrow. And so he's kind of like surveying, uh, surveying it, just kind of looking around and checking things out. Now, what he likely went is kind of the courtyard of the Gentiles. This is the place where if you're not a Jew or you, or you have some issue going on, this is the place set aside for you to be able to come and to pray and to commune with God, okay? But the, what was taking place in this place, in this courtyard of the Gentiles, was an exchanging of goods and services. And so what would happen is we've got... Uh, you know, you and I, and so we're traveling to the temple. We wake up, and so Carolyn and I are walking in there, and we walk in, we've got our currency, and we walk over to the table, and we're like, I want two doves. That's all I got money for. I need two doves. They're like, all right, what do you got? And they're like, I got these coins. I like, "Whoop, oh, can't use those coins here. We're going to have to exchange them. Okay, I'm going to exchange them. So here's my coins. I take these coins. I'm going to go to the next table. It's just like going to the DMV. And so now I've got another line to wait in. And so I get right there, and I'm exchanging them, and I give them my money, and I get my dove, and so, all right, I'm going to go over here. And then I hand my dove off, and now they're going to be sacrificed so all of this, imagine thousands and thousands of people kind of gathered in this area, all this type of deal, and the whole time you're this Gentile who's come in there, and all you want to do is pray. All you want to do is kind of have this quiet moment of reflection to gather before God to say, I am a sinner, wretched, have mercy on me. But everybody around you is caught up in exchanging of money. Everybody around you is caught up in buying stuff. Everybody around you is paying no attention to the communion you want to have with God you ever noticed how incredibly difficult it is to have kind of this alone, quiet time with the Lord? If you have you know, a TV on the background, somebody's taking a phone call, and all these things are just working for a distraction, imagine that times 100. This is the only place that they were set aside to be able to gather to worship him, to commune with him. And they were shown no love, they were shown no mercy, they were given no opportunity to gather in this place. This is, this is what Jesus steps into. So picking up in verse 12, it says, that so Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He drove them out. I mean, we're not talking one or two people where they walk over and Jesus like kicks over the stand with the Girl Scout cookies on it. It says, take the Thin Mints elsewhere. <laughs> this is everybody gathered all over in this area. And Jesus comes in and he begins to drive them out the virtue of his presence, all the meekness and humility he had on the cult, he lays that aside. He is filled with, with anger on the half of his father and what's happening here and what the temple has been made and so he drives them out to the point that everybody else leaves. This is something, right? Imagine if I went here to this front row and I start slapping them around. And, and, and you guys look at it and you're like, well, we may stay. Maybe he won't do that to us. But, but imagine then if you all left if you all left, by virtue of what I'm doing. And so he goes around and he throws over tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he drives them all out. And then he speaks. And it's so important. He quotes out of Isaiah 56, verse 7, and he quotes out of Jeremiah, chapter 7. He's driving them out, and he says, My house should be called a house of prayer. There was no opportunity for prayer. There was no opportunity for those Gentiles gathered there to commune with the Lord. It's why it's so incredibly important that Isaiah 56 verse seven finishes this phrase and it says, my house should be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Jesus recognized that they were engaged in the commerce of God. They weren't engaged in the communion with God. They weren't there to spend time with the Lord. They were there to exchange money for a service and so he quotes this and then he goes on he says but you make it a den of robbers and so he says this is what it's supposed to be a house of prayer but you've made it a den of robbers within the book of jeremiah in chapter 7 jeremiah speaks to a people who are living so incredibly far from the lord And starting in verse one of this, it talks about how the word came to him, and he tells Jeremiah, you need to go stand in the gate, and you need to tell people what it should be like, and how they should actually act, and how they should behave. And you need to tell them, there's this promise that if they amend their ways, I'll let them stay here, I'll let this be their land, I will bless them, I'll extend blessing to them. But what they need to know is that their behavior is completely unacceptable. So Jeremiah finds a group of people who thought it was okay in some sense just to kind of do whatever the heck you want to do. You know, sleep around a little bit, that's okay. You wanna just kind of talk however you want to, that's okay. You wanna completely disregard God, that's okay, because when you step into the temple, then the persona of religiosity can come on and God is is mandated to bless you. Imagine if it would, if you would, if you could live your life however you want to. Uh, Monday through Saturday, but the moment you walk in here, now you've got to be holy and religious. And because now in this place you have to be holy and religious, God in heaven was like, I was going to smite you, but now you've got your holy and religious manifestation going. Oh, I'm going to get you when you step out. You better not leave. Right? But in some sense, there's this kind of driving force for us in our lives, this cycle of I can live it however I want to and then have a hard reset on Sundays. I can live however I want to and have a hard reset on Christmas. I can live however I want to and have a hard reset on Easter. I can grow closer to God in these moment-by-moment lives, and then I can grow further and further away as I live my life however the heck I want to. So he says to them, There in chapter 7 and picking up in verse 8, he says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. In essence, he says to them, you believe a lie. It's not going to matter. It's not going to work for you. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? In essence, is this one idol not enough? Now you're going to pursue other gods? And then having done all these things, are you going to come and stand before me in this house? Living horribly. Giving no sense or fashion that they love the Lord. Giving no sense or fashion that they want to follow him. But there's something special about this place, they would say. That in this place we receive his blessing. That in this place we receive his forgiveness. It doesn't matter out there. In this place it's different. They would say in verse 10, and then you come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and you say, we are delivered. We are delivered. Only to go on doing all these abominations. In essence, I want to have my cake, and I want to eat it too. I want to live however the heck I want to, and I want you to bless me when I'm here and in this place. God does not trade this way. He does not function this way. His character will not allow him. So verse 11 says, has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? In essence, when Jesus steps in, when he steps in there to the temple and he throws over the tables and he drives them out, he stands up and say, my house should be called a house of prayer for all peoples and you have made it this place of special blessing regardless of however the heck you live. You're engaged in trade and commerce. Your actions show you to be far from God. You're not here to commune with me, to be my special people. You're only here to engage in religious services. I think he could say the same thing to us. There is this temptation to kind of split our lives in two, to bifurcate our lives, where we have those things which are holy and then those things that are secular. And it is most convenient for us if the secular occupies the vast majority of our lives and the holy is kind of this center place that, that, that we keep kind of cordoned off And we have this false understanding, this deluded understanding and assertion that if we live however we want, we will not ultimately affect the holy. But what I would tell you is that all of your life is to be lived as a a fragrant enrollment, a sacrifice to the Lord. There is no cordoning off of one area, one aspect of your life. He deserves, he owns all of it. And we reveal our heart by not giving it to him. And we reveal our understanding of who he is and his character when we think that we can coordinate it off. And we follow them down the same path. He says, this is supposed to be a house of prayer for all peoples and you've made that an impossibility because you've invited commerce into the middle of it. So this is kind of the, the message that he brings to them. Now in the middle of this this kind of sermon of really forceful words of, of characterizing what they're doing as being wholly wrong, we find these two unlikely people come up to him. These two groupings of people that come up to him. Verse 14 says, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. I want you to think about how confusing this would be for a blind person. So you're blind and somebody has likely led you into the temple. And it's just kind of normal. You just understand this. There's this hubbub of people all around you, noises and all these things. And then you begin to hear shouting in the distance. And you begin to hear running. And then you hear one voice cry out above all the others, you have made my house a den of robbers. And in that moment you know. This is decidedly different than what was taking on before and you're the lame person laying on the ground and you have no ability to be mobile on your own but you're laying there and you're drawing close to it because you want a blessing of the Lord and in that moment what you hear is decidedly different than what you heard before and in that moment you turn to the people around you you say get me close to him i want to be close to him he is different and drawing close to Jesus, Jesus doesn't look at them and give them a sermon and say, look, you guys aren't engaged in the same process, are you? No, he comes close to them because he knows that they know. They're the, he's the only one that can provide them healing. He's the only one that can provide them relief. And so he heals them. He heals them. The blind and the lame come to him and he heals them. And then comes the third character. So you're a chief priest. You are a... You are a scribe. And you see all of these things. You've heard that he raised Lazarus from the dead. You're hoping that's a joke and a hoax and not real because you got big problems if it is. And you see these things that he's done, how he's given the blind back their sight, how he's made the lame to walk. And, and there's no other way you can characterize this. You just say, like, I don't know what to say. It's just amazing. But then you begin to hear, you begin to hear the children crying out, save us, son of David. And this is an opportunity for you. This is an opportunity for the the religious. It's an opportunity for the good people to look at it and say, Why am I not praising? Why do I not worship? But instead, they were indignant. They're angry. They're frustrated. And they turn to Jesus and they look at him. And they say, Do you not hear what they're saying? In essence, their question is, Hey, Have you had a hearing test lately? Their question and their accusation is, this is completely inappropriate. Make them shut up. Make them be quiet. Don't let them talk like this. Don't let them engage like this. Make them be quiet. And Jesus responds, he says, yes. I have heard. I hear what they're saying. I hear that they cry out and say, son of David. Save us. And he says, have you not read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared plays? The kids get it. The children get it. He's doing something decidedly different than anything that was done before. He's riding the ship. He's correcting their worship. He's inviting and worthy of praise. The children get it. And the religious elite and the establishment look at it and say, make them shut up. As we look at the triumphal entry, we're given an opportunity to reflect inwardly on how we define who Jesus is. You see, we can be the crowd, the crowd that follows him in, that is praising him, and we got hands raised, we got eyes closed, c- because in some sense, we see Jesus as the Jesus of life enhancement. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We see Jesus <laughs> as the Jesus of life enhancement, right? This Jesus who's going to come in and who's going to make our wife more beautiful, who's going to make our husbands more handsome, who's going to make our bank account larger, who's going to make us be physically healthy and well and vibrant, we can worship the Jesus of life enhancement and miss the Jesus of Scripture. They wanted the Jesus who would come in and deliver them. They wanted him on a war horse. They wanted him strong and mighty, driving the Romans out. And many of us today, that's exactly who we want Jesus to be. We want the Jesus who makes us more uh, uh, of, of an overcomer. We want the Jesus who helps us overcome the obstacles in our life. But we miss the fact that Jesus comes as a suffering servant. This is why it's so incredibly important that he came humble in me seated on a donkey he wasn't calling for fanfare he wasn't calling for for the branches he wasn't calling for the cloaks he was calling for their hearts and today he calls for yours too don't miss the jesus of the crucifixion for the jesus of life enhancement salvation is found in the suffering servant Salvation is found in the Jesus who calls out to the lame and to the blind and says, Come to me. Salvation is found in the Jesus who says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is where salvation is found. Some of us miss Jesus because we're just too stinking religious. You're a phenomenal Baptist, or Protestant, or evangelical, or conservative, or Republican, or or however you would describe yourself. You're too much of this, and so what you see Jesus as as, as kind of this, this, this early beginnings of conservatism. You see Jesus is high and moral, and you want Jesus to bring morality everywhere. So you have a hard time accepting those who don't look like you. You have a hard time accepting those who don't talk like you. You have a hard time accepting that Jesus could come in and run roughshod over the way you've made your life. You've created such a neat and orderly life. It's safe. It's secure. And if I were to ask anybody, they would say, you are a good person. Man, you tithe, you give to the poor, you don't say anything bad bad about other people, you know that's not acceptable, you just think them quietly. But you hear others cry out exceptionally when you see things happen that just, they're just not kosher for you. You want the neat and orderly religious Jesus. You don't want the Jesus who associates with prostitutes, you don't want the Jesus who, who hangs out with drunkards? You don't want the Jesus who hangs out with tax collectors and people on the fringes of society. You would join with others who G- say Jesus is a drunkard and a glutton. This guy has way too much table fellowship with bad people. He spends way too much time in bars trying to reach people. I don't know about this Jesus. The Jesus that's got a good job, you know, it's kind of a white collar Jesus that comes in, he drives a nice car, he's got a beautiful family. Uh, you know, 1.5 children, and he comes in, and, and he's just kind of a pillar of society. He tithes, which is amazing, and, and you know, he, he gives offerings, and he's just a good guy, and this is the Jesus you want, because this is who you want to be. But this is not who Jesus is. He doesn't want to be praised unceremoniously. He don't, doesn't want to be praised in ignorance. Neither neither is this Jesus willing to be neat and orderly. He overturns those things that are neat and orderly. And he calls you to come and to suffer and die with him. He invites you to take up your cross and to follow him. And he asks us, who do we say that he is? The people to be in this passage. Man, we want to be the blind who've been given our sight by Jesus. We want to be the lame who've been led to walk by Jesus. And we want to be the children who, when they're asked who he is, they say, we know that he is the risen one, and I stand to praise. Who do you say Jesus is? And how is the way you're living and what you're saying communicating to the world around you about who he is. Let me pray for us. Father, you give us an opportunity to worship you in spirit and in truth. And God, I pray that we would do so well. God, that we would worship you through your son as he is, not as we suppose him to be or desire him to be but we would worship him as the risen Lord, the suffering servant, the one who came to suffer and die. Not that our lives may be better, but so that our lives may be saved. Help us to to want to meet Jesus, the Jesus you have revealed to us. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your word, for its clarity. that you would lead us in truth and help us to reflect on your word, that you would lead us into worship by the power of your Holy Spirit. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.